You can see in your bulletin that we turn now to Ephesians in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1. And I will start reading for us at verse 15 in Ephesians 1. Before I do, before I get there, just a quick reminder of what Paul says before he gets there. These opening verses in Ephesians 1, it's typical Paul. He just seems to flow from one thought to the next as he makes his way. So at the very beginning of the letter... He goes on and on about God blessing us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he's got a lot to say about what those blessings are. And then that leads him to say, for this reason I pray for you. And then that leads him to say, let me tell you what I pray for you. And he fills them in. Among other things, he says, I I want you to be able to see with new eyes. I pray that for you. I want you to be able to see with new eyes the very power of God. And that is what leads him to mention the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So let me begin reading for us. At verse 15, and I will read through to the end of the chapter. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this is the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who has been at work in us and among us so that we have ears to hear your voice. You've done that. You've done that work in us. You've given us ears to hear And so would we hear today. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
among the books I've got at home on the shelves there in, in my study at home. I've got a book that's entitled Turning Points. Turning Points. And the subtitle of the book is Decisive Moments in the History of Christianity. So there's a dramatic title, Turning Points, Decisive Moments in the History of Christianity. It's a sampler from church history. Each chapter covers one outstanding episode or event in the history of the church. And they truly are outstanding events. They stand out. They are decisive moments. Things were not the same after they happened. Everything from the fall of Jerusalem in the first century to the split between East and West in the 11th to the conversion of John Wesley in the 1730s. Turning point. Decisive moments, outstanding events with lasting repercussions. And I suppose a title like that can, can resonate in our own hearts because each of us has had turning points in our own lives. It's not just the grand sweep of history. It's your biography and mine. Each of us can look back and remember decisive moments. Afterward, things weren't the same. If you're younger, your turning points might not loom quite so large, but they're there. A few of mine, the decision to attend UVA. The decision to audition for the men's glee club right after I got to UVA. Stumbling through the doors of a Presbyterian church in Fairfax, Virginia in the summer of 19, right after I graduated. Going to preach for a church in Gainesville one Sunday morning in February of 2008. And that was the day I drove home thinking, I may try to write a book. Turning points. Decisive moments. We've all got them. So here's the question. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, was that a turning point in human history? Would we put it that way? It certainly was a decisive moment. It certainly was an outstanding event. And I mean, you talk about lasting repercussions. That's putting it mildly. Things were not the same after it happened. So would we call it a turning point? And I've thought it would be better to call it something else. Let's call it a raising point. Because this one's in a class by itself. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was the singular raising point in the whole of human history. I mean, think about it. When you make a turn, say when you're driving... When you make a turn, even if it's a sharp turn, even if it's a U-turn, as many of us make when we leave this property on Sunday morning, even after you've made it, the fact remains that you remain on the same plane, even if it was a U-turn. 
so that you're now driving north on Shirley Gate instead of south. Not all that much has changed. Same road rules, same traffic patterns, same automobile technologies, same Cheerios stuck in the seats. You're still driving. You're not flying. This isn't the end of Back to the Future. It was a turning point, maybe a good one. Maybe you saved yourself a lot of time by picking a different route, but you are still on the same level. In that sense, not a whole lot's changed. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead wasn't just a turning point. It was a raising point. It was the raising point because it was the Son of God being raised into the age to come and he was the first. He was the first one to go. That's not just a turn, even a sharp turn, even a U-turn. That was resurrection. And today's an opportunity to reflect again and to bask again in what that means. So Ephesians chapter 1, that's why we've turned there today. The resurrection. And remember, Paul mentions it. We just heard this as I read it. Paul mentions the resurrection because for him, it's connected to, it's a demonstration of the power of God that's at work in the lives of the people that he's writing to and that's what he wants them to get. That that power is at work in their lives. So listen to it again. He says, I want you to know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So that's what we're learning about here this morning. And I do want to point out three points about it. Three lessons that we can glean today and take with us today, even as we drive away, make a U-turn on Shirley Gate Road. Here's the first. Jesus' resurrection was his entrance into glory. Jesus' resurrection was his entrance into glory. And I make this point simply because it's good for us to be reminded of what his resurrection amounted to. Paul doesn't unpack this here, but we can, and we need to if we're going to appreciate what Paul does say here. Jesus' resurrection was his entrance into glory. When God raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus didn't just come back He didn't just come back to the kind of physical life that he had experienced before. No, when God raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus passed through death into a kind of physical life and experience that he himself had never experienced before. Here we can borrow Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 15, that great long chapter about the resurrection. Jesus' body was laid down perishable, in dishonor, in weakness, a natural body. But it was raised imperishable, in glory, in power, and in the Spirit of God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. 
In his resurrection from the dead, Jesus entered into a realm of physical experience that was qualitatively different from what he experienced before. Now, this is imperishable, powerful, brilliant. You see, this wasn't just restoration. Getting back to the way things were. It was a kind of return. And we can put it that way. There's nothing wrong with putting it that way. We can say that, yes, Jesus' disciples got him back. They got him back from the dead. But it was a, it was a peculiar kind of getting him back. It wasn't just restoration. This was full-blown resurrection. Entering into a way things had never been before, but would now always be for him. So you see how potent the word raised is when it comes to Jesus. This was unprecedented. In the Bible before this, there were people who'd been brought back from the dead, no doubt. Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead. John chapter 11. Lazarus' body is in the tomb. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And it happens. Lazarus comes forth. Lazarus comes back. But that's just it. Lazarus came back, period. Lazarus came back to mortal life. Came back to the way things had been before. Lazarus was raised that day only one day to fall again, to die again. Lazarus eventually died again. Because he came back to mortal life. So that sort of thing had happened in the Old Testament too. And there's nothing wrong with using the word resurrection to refer to events like those. And I say that because the Bible does. This is a, a verse from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 35. Looking back on Bible history, this verse says this. Women received back their dead by... Resurrection. Hebrews 11, verse 35. So it's not like we're not allowed to use the word resurrection to refer to those events when people were brought back from the dead. We can. The Bible does. We just have to remember Jesus' was resurrection was unlike any other. Jesus came back to immortal life he entered into glory and there are any number of ways that we might make that distinction in our minds even in our note taking one day way to do it if you're taking notes if you're writing out is to use a capital letter so lazarus was small r raised jesus was capital r raised if it helps you can picture one of those ornate capital letters that you'd find in some ancient medieval manuscript, right, with all kinds of flourishes and birds and flowers. Picture an R like that. I won't challenge you to draw one of those right now in your notes, but you can imagine it. Another way to make the distinction is with volume. Lazarus was raised. Jesus was raised. And he was the first. His resurrection was his entrance into glory. He was the first. He was the pioneer. So that's our first point today. 
the resurrection was more stupendous than a lot of people realize when they think about it. It was entrance into glory. Here's our second point. And here especially we focus on the way Paul puts it here in Ephesians 1. Our second point is this. Jesus' resurrection shows us the power of God. Jesus' resurrection shows us the power of God. Because remember, Paul's saying to these folks, I'm praying for you. I pray that the eyes of your hearts will be enlightened so that you'll be able to see, among other things, so that you'll be able to see the power of God. Verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Jesus' resurrection shows us the power of God. Only divine power could do what was done in Jesus' resurrection. Only divine power could do that. Mere human power cannot. Mere human power can't even bring a squirrel back to life, let alone a man. And then remember the point we just made, point one. This wasn't just a matter of bringing a man back to life, back to mortal life. This was a matter of raising a dead man from death all the way to immortal life, glorious life, heavenly life. This was the raising point. In the whole of human history, this was the Son of God being raised in the age to come. Only divine power can pull that off. And the Father did it. The Father raised the Son. And I read about it earlier in our service. I read about it from John 20. I read about the resurrection. Or did I? Did I, earlier in our service, read an account of the resurrection in John 20? Is there one in John? For that matter, is there one in any of the Gospels? Have you ever noticed that none of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, none of them, actually describes the precise moments of Jesus coming back to life. How about that? Those precise moments when his dead body was made alive, made one again with his human soul, made glorious for the world to come. You will not find any of that in the Gospels. We're not told about that. We're told what leads up to the resurrection, including his burial. And we're told what happens After his resurrection, including appearing to people and stunning people, but there is no description of those precise moments. And that is so beautiful. The single most decisive display of divine power in the whole of human history, and it's as if we're not allowed to watch. We're not allowed to watch the resurrection. We're only allowed to watch him emerge as the risen one. The way God chooses to put his own power on display often runs counter to his own, our own expectations. We want a show. We want a spectacular display. We want to see it. We want to see it happen. And then we want to be able to click back and watch it again and again on loop. Here we've got the single most decisive display of divine power in the whole of human history and we're not allowed to watch. 
And then, even when he does appear to people, he doesn't appear to the whole world, which is also now one of our expectations. No, he only appears to a few. It's God's way of saying, I will exercise my power and I will display my power in the way that I choose. Not in the way that you might expect. Not in the way that you might demand. It's God's way of saying what really matters is not that you witness those precise moments when I powerfully raised him. What really matters is, will you have faith in him now as the one who was so powerfully raised? God humbles us with all of our misguided expectations. God meets us and challenges us to have faith. Faith in what he's been pleased to reveal no more and no less. Will you have faith in him now as the one who was so powerfully raised even though you didn't see it actually happen? And you can't cue up a video so that you can watch it happen. And what matters to us now as Christians is to have faith that it's that very same power that's at work in our lives today. And don't we need it? Producing endurance in us. And we seem to be running out of steam. Producing patience in us. When we're up against something or someone that is trying our patience again. The very same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. To strengthen us, to change us for moments just like those. That's a very good thing because we have them. We'll have them today. So that's our second point. Jesus' resurrection shows us the power of God. Now here's our third and our final. And this one, I suppose, is our sermon title. Raised to reign. Our third point is that Jesus' resurrection led to his reign. Because notice again how Paul puts it here in Ephesians 1. Talks about the power of God that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And then what? Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then notice how he goes on. So that we feel the full force of the grandeur of that. Seated at his right hand in the heavenly places. He goes on. Far above. All rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God didn't just raise Jesus from the dead. He raised him in order that Jesus would reign. Raised to life and then exalted into heaven in order to reign. And that was God's power too. Paul puts it here in terms of enthronement. Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, what does it mean to say that? Seated at God's right hand. It means that God gave him a place of honor and authority. Jesus was exalted in his body. Need to make that clear. 
And he still is. He still wears our human nature, body and soul. And he always will. We need to make that clear. But whatever his physical posture is, even right now, whatever his precise position is in his human body, whether he's seated or standing, whether he's fixed or moving, these things remain profoundly mysterious to us when it comes to the world above. But this is the main idea. God gave him a place of honor and authority in order to reign. We can put it this way. God raised Jesus up, and then he sat him down. God raised Jesus up from the dead, and then he gloriously, everlastingly sat him down in order to reign. I say gloriously because sometimes it's the case that being sat down is not a good thing. You're at a soccer game and you stand up to reach for your wallet and the guy behind you says, down in front. Then you are seated as you slink down in shame. Or you're at a public meeting and you stand up to make a speech and everybody groans and says, oh, sit down. And you are seated And you slink down in shame. Or you're in first grade and you're behaving like a kindergartner. And the teacher sits you down in a remote part of the classroom and it is not a seat of honor. Sometimes it's the case that being sat down is not a good thing. But in this case, oh, it was a good thing. It was the best thing. It was royal. It was glorious. God raised him up. And then sat him down. And one of the things that made it so glorious is the fact that Jesus was seated at God's right hand as one who had been raised. Capital R, raised. Jesus was seated at God's right hand as one who had entered into glory in his very bodily experience. As one whose body was imperishable, powerful, and brilliant now. Think about it this way. It wouldn't have been right for Jesus to be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, clothed in a body that was perishable and natural, marked by dishonor and weakness, belonging to this present age. It wouldn't have been right. It would have been been a mismatch for him to be seated in glory in order to reign clothed in drab garb like that. It wouldn't have been right. This helps us to understand what the resurrection was for. The resurrection, for Jesus to be clothed with a body like that now, was fitting for the place of sovereign reign that he was about to enter into. Imagine, imagine you find yourself living in, in a kingdom that's clearly in desperate need of a new king. One who's good, one who's wise and righteous, one who's merciful and kind. You find yourself living in a kingdom that's in desperate need of a king like that. And not only that, but you think you've found the man who's living in the kingdom, who's the man for the job. 
He is good. And he is wise and righteous. And he is merciful and kind. And you have reason to believe that he's willing to assume that authority. You find yourself thinking about him. He's qualified for this. He's called to this. He's destined for this. You think you've found that man. And not only that, but one day it looks like he's on his way to be crowned. And your heart leaps. And you're not the only one. Looks like he's making his way through the city, through the capital city, on the way to the palace, where he's actually going to be crowned as king. And you... Because you have a vested interest in this. You follow him. But you only follow him at a, as a distance. He's winding his way through these streets. On his way to the palace. But then there's a moment when your heart sinks. And that's because there's a moment. When he takes a turn. That seems to lead him away from the palace. Seems to lead him in the wrong direction. And not only does he take that turn. It seems to lead away from the palace. But then he takes another turn down into a dark alley. And then he takes another turn through the doors of a shabby storefront. And he disappears. Just when you'd come to think. That this was the man. And this was the day. He turned and he turned and he turned and he was gone. And just when you're about to give up and go home, thinking you've got to look for somebody else, the doors of that shabby storefront open again and he steps out. And at first, you hardly recognize him. Because when he steps out through the doors of that shabby storefront into that dark alley, he's now wearing royal garb. He's been transformed. A robe and a scepter and a ring and a crown. He's now wearing royal garb. Even in that dark alley, he's radiant. In a sense, because it's a dark alley, He shines all the more radiantly. And then he walks up to you, clothed like that. And he smiles. And he says, you know, I knew that you were following me the whole time. And I knew you were not expecting those turns. And I knew that you were disappointed even crushed when I disappeared. But tell me, you remember what I was wearing before? You didn't really think I could be crowned wearing that, did you? You didn't really think I could go to the palace for my coronation dressed like that, did you? And with that, he turns His robe sweeps behind him and he heads off to the palace again. And your heart's not sinking anymore. Your heart's leaping again because now you get it. Before it was time to be crowned, 
it was time to be transformed. Before it was time to be crowned, he had to be transformed. And he was, and Jesus was, transformed bodily in order to reign gloriously. So brothers and sisters, those three lessons today, Jesus' resurrection was his entrance into glory and it was a demonstration of the very power of God and it led to his reign and he's reigning now. So here we've been talking today about turning points and raising points. Sometimes when you make a turn, say when you're driving, you make a turn in order to avoid traffic, it turns out that the turn was a very, very bad idea. Because the new route that you just turned onto was worse traffic than the one you were on before. Sometimes you experience a turning point that doesn't turn out to have been a great turn. But brothers and sisters, this was a raising point. And you can rest in this. You don't have to worry that this one's going to turn out to disappoint you the way some turns do. So don't be afraid to go all in and believe this and rejoice in this and take this personally. And I want to urge you, I want to urge all of us this morning to take all three of our points personally and take them with you. So first of all, That first point, Jesus' resurrection was his entrance into glory. When you, Christian, think about the resurrection today or any day for that matter, think raised thoughts. Think thoughts that rise above mere restoration to full-blown resurrection. And you understand that's not just a nice, interesting theological point to make. Christian, your very hope rides on that. If Jesus just came back to the way things always were, then that's the way they're always going to be. Your very hope for the future, an everlasting future, a glorious future, rides on Jesus being raised to glory. So bask in this. As I said before, resurrection means a whole lot more than a lot of people think It does. Don't be one of them. And that second point about the power of God. When you start to wonder if God can change you, change your heart. Think again about the empty tomb. And about the power that emptied it. Because it's that power that's at work in you to change you, to make you more like Christ. Or when you start to wonder if God can possibly change someone you love or heal your body or transform your circumstances, whatever it might be. Think again about the empty tomb and about the power that emptied it. The issue is never, is God able to do something that you want him to do? The issue is always, is God willing to do that something? If it's something that he's promised to do in his word, then make no mistake, he'll do it. In his time and in his way, he'll do it. If it's something that he hasn't promised in his word, well, then he might. And you're going to have to wait upon the unfolding of his will to see. 
But the issue is never his power. The resurrection proves that. And so you can rest in his faithfulness and in his wisdom. And then that third and final point. Jesus' resurrection leading to his reign. He is reigning, Christian, over your life today. Right here. Right now. In all of its details. Even the painful ones. Even the perplexing ones. What is it in your life today, right here, right now, that's painful or perplexing? Or for that matter, bright and blessed. We want to take in the whole sweep, right, of our circumstances. Whatever it is, you can know that Jesus, Jesus, the risen king, the risen sovereign, brought it to pass so that you'd learn to trust in him. And be grateful to him in all circumstances. Christian, take it personally. He was raised to reign over you, for you. So may we believe and rejoice this day, this first day of the week. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bow before you today as the one who was raised from the dead. And we marvel at what your resurrection was. Nothing less than your pioneering entrance into glory. And then we tremble at the thought of the power that brought it to pass. But then we rejoice again. Because that fearful, awful, wonderful power is now at work in us to set us free. Lord Jesus, we bow before you now as the one who reigns. And how fitting, how perfect, how brilliant that you should be clothed in such glory as the one seated at the Father's right hand. So do we rejoice this day. And look forward to the day when you shall descend from heaven and transform our lowly bodies to be like your own. Sustain us until that day, and may it come quickly. Amen.